Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good evening, everybody. How you all doing? Hope you're getting through the week well. Focusing on self-care, joy and pleasure, and tons and tons of rest. Setting boundaries, putting your phone away, spending time with your loved ones, and checking in on three people a day. I want you to reach out to three people every single day. Phone, email, picture share, DM, texts, FaceTime. It doesn't even matter. Skype. Three people a day. And that's for your mental health. That's for their mental health, right? We're all in this together. Uh, got a great show planned. We're going to be doing a little couples therapy and also talking about male insecurities. Yep. Interesting facts, stats, ways to maneuver. We'll be getting in all that. And, of course, some DMs. So if you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page. Guess where? In the DMs. So that's called sliding into the DMs. But uh, yeah, we're here for you. Any question you got, hook us up. Always anonymous, confidential. And if you want to check out past episodes of Loveline, you can do so by going over to wearechannelq.com, scrolling down, clicking on my face. There they are. So I wanted to share an article with you today. I love things that are kind of ridiculous. And this one is. It's an article on uh, how to deal with stress, you know? And the American Psychological Association was like, yeah, we're going to put this article out there. And it's kind of ridiculous. And I was laughing. I I hated the article before I even read it. I'll just be honest with you. I could see the imagery. I already knew they weren't going to think systemically. And they were going to basically victim blame. Um, And and they did. They didn't let me down. So let's go through what they were talking about. How do you you deal with stress, uh, American Psychological Association? Well, here's the first thing. They want you to remember that stress brings valuable life benefits. Oh, well, thank you, stress. Thank you. Because as they say, it can lead to increased resilience and an ability for this one and an ability to manage even bigger and respond better to other life stressors. So basically like life is just one big ball of stress and the way to deal with it is to be like, thank you stress because you're helping me get better and more resilient to deal with even more stress because it's just all about stress. We're not going to look at what creates the stress and work on dismantling that. We're just going to say people on the receiving end that are victimized by, you know, capitalism, racism, you know, not having universal health care, all these things like you should just learn how to deal with more stress, but it gets better. Then they say, well, what, what else should you do? You should reframe how you perceive it. It's about perception. It's not even real, basically. It's like when people say, everyone has the same opportunities. No, they don't. Not if your name sounds black, because we know through the studies that on applications, a lot of HR departments are more inclined to bring back white-sounding people's names. Not if you're gay. Why? We live in a homophobic culture, where in some countries you could be put to death. It's not per- that's not a perception problem. We also live in a transphobic culture. So if you're trans, 
it's not gonna be so great either when if your identification doesn't match or if they're just transphobic, it's not gonna be a safe working environment or you also won't get hired, right? We have to remember that. So it's not perspective, but I appreciate them saying, just gotta reframe it. Here's my favorite, the example. You might perceive losing your job as negative, I like that. You might perceive that. Uh, forget about bills, healthcare, you know, responsibility for caretaking. Um, <clears throat> they say, but sometimes losing your job can actually be the catalyst you need to spur you on to doing what you really wanted to do. How you interpret that event's really critical. That's kind of offensive. You know what I mean? Like you're just interpreting it wrong. And uh, you got to get on to doing what you really wanted to do. What a position of privilege that you just feel like jobs are always available, don't have to hold on to them and that you can really just center your work in exactly what you wanna do. Like, it's so tone deaf and out of touch. Like what, like, I feel like this was written a decade ago. Um, then they say, focus on the things you can control. You know, again, it depends where you are in life and where you are in the corporate chain. Most of the things that are stressful, you can't control. And you might not be able to control really much of anything. Some people are completely disempowered and have abusive supervisors, bosses, jobs, structures. Um, but I love their example, climate change, for example, there's a lot of things related to climate change that are out of your control. Oh my God. Just need a better perspective on it. Um, turn off the, the, the tap water they'd probably say, which is also offensive, but what they actually do get to, and this is meaningful and important are what you should do when stress gets to be too much. Look, make sure you're covering the basics. And I agree with this. Make sure you're eating, make sure you're drinking water, make sure you're sleeping. Um, and, and trying to find time for joy. And I do appreciate that. We wanna make sure when we're struggling that we're still taking care of ourselves, you know? And, and those are the basics. Um, also, if you're feeling like you're holding it in your body, gritting your teeth, tensing your muscles, try some stress-reducing techniques. Go for a walk, do some slow, deeper breathing. You know, I think that's great, I agree with that. Um, also, they're saying if you're feeling emotionally stressed, overwhelmed, try self-soothing self activities, right? Reaching out to some people, connect spiritually, meditate, um, listen to music. That's a big one for me. I put on my headphones, I play my, my music, I zone out, I let it kind of slow me down, take me to another place, distract, right? Uh, and then finally, know what's right for you. Some people are a little more resilient, others learn skills. Uh, try to moderate your stress levels over time, take breaks. You know, again, but that's not possible for everyone. There's some people, again, that are saying, well, I don't have access to those resources or I am disempowered or it does matter what's going on, you know? Some of the things that happen in our lives are real. It's not about just positive thinking and it's not just a matter of reframing your thinking. It's not a matter of, you know, this being karma somehow. There are some structures that absolutely do oppress and are violent for some people, you know? Um, so it's about changing those systems, reorienting things, dismantling, <laughs> not saying people on the receiving end need to find a way to better handle it and just keep taking it. You know what I mean? Um, anywho, uh, coming up next, some couples therapy. So uh, stick around and then we'll be sliding into those DMs and then talking about male, male securities, normalizing, giving language to, and hopefully empowering. Listen to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Odyssey. All right, we're back. Time to do a little couples therapy. I, I'm looking at some research, and I thought this was actually really fascinating. Um, this was done on over 11,000 couples. And basically, was looking at what are some of the signs or symptoms. More so, it's actually perspectives and ideas uh, that a relationship will or will not work, right? And they broke it down into individual characteristics, and then things that are perceptions based on how you feel about the relationship, right? So we'll start with the individual factors. 
and and these are actually really good ways to assess relational readiness, I think. And also, if you can call these out in yourself, because again, we're assessing ourselves, it, you can work on it. You can make it a target of therapy uh, individually with yourself, just working on it, you know, calling it out in yourself or actually getting into therapy around it. But the five factors that were individualized were life satisfaction, negative feelings, depression, attachment anxiety, and attachment avoidance. So we'll just say relational anxiety and relational avoidance. Um, and we'll kind of break them down. But um, uh, give me one quick second. Okay, so this is pulling together a, a multitude of studies, which I like. So it's a little meta, um, bum, 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 bum. Okay, yeah, so the research kind of continually swims around these same five factors and how they relate. Um, okay, so the first piece, how do you feel about your life? When, when I used to run a group, um, I, was, I was working at an inpatient drug and alcohol treatment center a long time ago. I was there for about seven years, and I ran a sex and relationship group. It was, you know, mental health-centered, and we would talk about relational readiness, and these people would be newly sober, and they'd say, what are, you know, what do I need to look for to know that I'm ready to start dating again? And it was a really beautiful question because it was them essentially saying, I, I recognize this is the clients in the group talking, that I might not be always good for someone and I want to make sure I am. And I said, oh, I think that's so great. I want everyone to think in terms of relational readiness, right? How, how healthy am I? What will I be bringing into someone else's life? When I enter someone else's life, am I going to make it harder, more complex, or am I going to make it great, right? So it's really about, again, your own life satisfaction. And that's one of the things I'd say to them. It's not about how much sober time you have. That doesn't promise anything. I, I gave them a couple barometers and I said, number one, how happy are you? And that's not to say they're not allowed to at times not be happy, but if you're not, if you don't have general life satisfaction, then, then you, and again, this is theoretical, you might not be ready to be in a relationship. And if you're already in one, know that that's going to impact your partner and that that should be a target of, of um, work. And that if you want to be a better partner, sometimes it's by working on yourself and making yourself happier within your life. Why? Well, if you don't have a good sense of life satisfaction, well, then you're going to try to make your partner responsible for your happiness. That's exhausting because what, what are they doing? They're trying to just succeed and find meaning and purpose in their life. A partner's, role, a partner's role is not to make you happy. It's to be a companion in your life and a companion on your journey, someone to spend time with, support. But they shouldn't have to make you happy. And so if you're not a happy person, you're not ready to be brought into someone's life because you're going to bring in that unhappiness and you're going to put it on them. And you're not going to benefit them, right? Like that doesn't offer them anything. And so work on finding life happiness first, right? And if you're in a relationship, work on that now if you don't have that either. Say, this is something I need to achieve first. What do I want to be doing with my life? You know, what's the quality of my sobriety for the sober people? But also, do I like the life that I've built? And if not, let me work on building one that someone would want to be a part of, right? Because that, that impacts mood. Like that's a key factor of assessing and looking at mental health and relational health, right? And then that leads into the next one we talked about, right? So that's life satisfaction and then negative feelings. Again, people that struggle with mental health issues are good partners and are worthy of being in relationships if they're working on it and aware of it. Otherwise, it's just leaking all over. And so again, Number one is, like I said, are you happy, right? Number two, are you working on your mental health? Are you aware of your mental health? We don't want to just drag ourselves into someone's life and bring in a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression. Um, you're allowed to have those things. You're allowed to struggle with those things, but you have to have it under some level of, I know what the work is. I'm addressing it. It can't just be, this is what's up, right? And so if you're constantly feeling stressed or depressed or anxious, work on it. Get into some therapy. Do some journaling, right? Do some self-reflection. But again, we, we don't want to enter with that. And if we already have that while we're in someone's life, we have to work on it. Because I say to the other partner, 
they might say, listen, I'm, I'm in a relationship with someone who's got a lot of mental health struggles. And I say, as long as they're addressing it and working on it and aware of it, that's the best you can ask. But if they're, if they're unwilling to get treatment for their drug and alcohol use or the mental health stuff, well, then you have a right to say, listen, I don't want to be a part of a relationship where someone's not taking care of themselves to the best that's possible for them, right? Because our partners are on the receiving end of that. And again, part of healthy relationship is looking at how we impact others and what kind of you know, quality of life they have as a result of us being brought into their life. So again, untreated mental health issues are gonna create some really unique challenges that a lot of people might not be up for. And you can't expect them to deal with what you're not willing to deal with. You can't say, I'm not willing to address my mental health stuff, but I want you to. I want you to be with me and be unfazed, right? Or help me with it. Just can't work like that. They're again dealing with their stuff. They have to trust that you're dealing with yours. It's like we're, you know, in two separate boats, or even if we're in the same boat. I, I'm back here rowing. I have to trust that you're in the front guiding and rowing as well. I can't take that much responsibility for both of us. It's not fair. And then we look at relational anxiety and um avoidance. If you're relationally avoidant, that's going to be really hard for someone to be in a relationship with unless they're avoidant. If they're avoidant and you're avoidant, usually that relationship doesn't really get off the ground. But if it does, ah, it feels good to both of them generally. But if you're with someone who wants a lot of closeness and intimacy and you're very avoidant, it's not going to work. And being avoidant doesn't mean you don't want relationship. It means that you have a lot of fears. And so you tend to lean out even while wanting the person or the relationship. So being relationally avoidant isn't about not being interested. And that throws some people off in early dating. They'll be like, oh, they don't get back to me. Or there's not a lot of depth when they get back to me. We don't spend a lot of time together. They must not be interested. Sometimes, or they're relationally avoidant. Relationships overwhelm them and scare them. They might be very interested in you in a relationship, but it's hard for them. They need someone who's going to give them time and be patient and move slow. Right. And then that comes up with relational anxiety as well. Right. Um, are you someone who gets overwhelmed very easily? Are you someone who's very jealous? Are you someone who tries to police and control your partner? If so, you want to work on that because the healthy person isn't going to have you enter and then set all these boundaries and rules because you're so anxious and don't trust yourself or someone else. Right. They're going to push back on that. So that's also something you want to be aware of. All right. We take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to keep talking about, um, Really important perspectives on what will help us succeed in our relationships. This this is actually about social relationships as well. So uh, yeah, stick around. More of that. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we're back and we're doing a little couples therapy and we're talking about factors that are individual and also relational that studies have shown. If these are attributes of our characterological style or personality style, these are things we want to really address because uh, again, part of mental health and relational health is being aware of who we are and what we're bringing into our relationship and how we impact our partner. So we're talking in the last segment about the individual factors, which are how happy are you, right? You want to enter a relationship while thriving. You don't want to start one when you're not doing great. It'll put a lot of pressure on them and also maybe make them miserable looking at mental health and addressing that and our relational anxiety or avoidance and how um, sometimes... Oh, we need to show up in a way that's beyond what we feel like we're capable of as a way to live in the solution and live in the embodiment of who we want to be, not live from our worst so we keep the bar high for ourselves. But now we're going to talk about the relational factors. Um, and these tend to be perception of your partner's commitment, how you assess that, what you assess that to be, levels of appreciation you have for your partner in the relationship, sexual satisfaction, and um, conflict. And these are really uh, huge because, again, your sense of how committed you think your partner is will directly impact how committed you'll let yourself be. And these are things I want to be able to be had as conversations. You know, hey, how committed are you? 
Or sometimes I wonder how committed you are. Um, can we talk about that? Notice my tone and my languaging. We're not attacking, we're not criticizing. We're just lovingly being curious. And if you can't do that in your relationship, work on creating the kind of relationship that can handle that kind of transparency and, and intimacy, right? Um, but perception of commitment, that's a massive piece of it. It will sometimes let people off the hook from them doing what they need to be doing or from living from their best. Um, also appreciation. Are you appreciative of your partner? I've shared with you how heartbreaking it is that there's stories of people being thankful that their partner's never around or they're always complaining or making jokes about the old ball and chain. It's like, that's not what this is about. And why are you helping to create or participate in the idea normalizing, not liking your husband, wife, or partner? Like, let's make that not normal. Let's, let's go, oh man, sorry to hear that. Not, oh yeah, I love when my wife's out of the house. Like, well then why are you with them? We want to live more in appreciation. Like I'm thankful when they're out of the house, they're happy. I'm thankful when they're home because I'm in a relationship with someone that I'm appreciative of and that's appreciative of me and that I feel is completely committed and I'm committed to them. That's what it should sound like. But we don't, that's very old school. A lot of people that are younger are kind of like, who stays in relationships that aren't rooted in love? Well, a lot of people, that's a very historical way of being where people thought that was just part of it. You know, not everyone always married for love or stayed in marriage for love. And that's the goal, companionship and love, right? Um, sexual satisfaction is a big one, especially if you're in a monogamous relationship. That will be a massive indicator of both individual health and relational health. Are your sexual needs being met? Or is your relationship about a deprivation? You know, like being with someone wanting monogamy, but then the sex isn't there, the compatibility is not there. And so it's really one of celibacy that doesn't tend to make people feel really good about the relationship they're in or even about themselves. So is the work about calling that out is the work about trying to create sexuality. Um, at least talk about it, at least make it something that we can talk about and acknowledge. No one has to be at fault. It could just be something that we need to look at. Or maybe we realize that we're meant to be friends, you know, that the relationships run its course. Maybe it's a personality style. I don't know, but I want people to be able to talk about these things because sexual satisfaction is a powerful part of relational satisfaction, right? Um, and also finally, like conflict is a big one. Conflict is where we really show compatibility and sustainability. How a couple manages conflict speaks to just the general mental health. When things are going well and you're doing well, great. That's simple. It's easy to be in love and in a relationship where things are feeling good. But when they're not, how that's managed and handled says so much more about the people in it and how healthy this relationship will be over a long period of time, right? And so really zero in on that. We've talked about that in other episodes. Soft startup, where you don't, start, you don't come out swinging. You start soft, knowing that I want this person to feel safe, to stay close, to stay engaged, to share with me what's going on. So it's a soft startup. It's, then it's not about criticizing, right? We're just making requests for things to be different, or we're just working on, or we're just kind of calling out. It's a work in progress. And then we keep following up and checking in. But there's a lot of couples that are conflict avoidant or very aggressive, and they're high conflict, and things get elevated, and sometimes step into some forms of emotional or physical abuse. That's not a good thing. That's not a good sign. And so that's going to be a, a major part of the work. Because I'd rather us live again in the inverse. Gratitude, appreciation, deep intimacy, right? Like if I said to you, what are you thankful for? Why, why do you have gratitude for your partner, your relationship? If you can't tell me why, because you're really disconnected or unsure, sit with that for a second. Because this is, that should be something that's very accessible because it's something that's brought in or related to, right? And if you don't think your partner's happy, ask, right? Because some people suffer in silence and they don't bring these things up because they don't feel like it's safe to or like their partner will be open to hearing it. 
So you want to familiarize bringing these topics up and talking about them. How are you happy? And that's why I keep saying I love the relational check-in. Every couple months or at least once a year, how's this past year been? How's this past month been? What changes should we make? Do we want to progress it further into this relationship? We can't always assume it should be forever or it will be. We should be checking in. Is this something we want to keep doing? What do we need to ask of ourselves and each other to make that healthy, right? That's important. Um, all right, we'll keep talking about it. Coming up next, though, we're going to do some DMs. If you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page. Always open. Doctors always in. Whatever you're wondering about, someone else might be as well, so you might be helping them out. And then, as always, past episodes, go to wearechannelq.com. They're all there. Check them out. Post, share, binge. Listen to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new Channel Q and Odyssey. All right, we're back. And it's time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. This one says, hey, Dr. D. You have normalized age gap relationships a lot. Awesome. But at what age do you think it's okay to engage in age gap relationships? I have a friend who is 19, dating a 31-year-old, for example. She was of consenting age legally. But it still seemed like there wasn't equality in that relationship. What are your thoughts? I love this question. Because uh, love shows up in all different age brackets, right? Uh, so once someone's of age, legally, technically, they can date whoever they want, right? Uh, but power differentials, look, that's not always age-based. And sometimes it works in the inverse, where the person who's older, uh, dealing and living within our ageist culture, feels of lesser worth and value, might be actually chasing and trying to court someone younger and feeling at the mercy of them and feeling very disempowered because they don't have age privilege, right? So it can go in different ways. Sometimes it's gendered, sometimes it's not. There are Sometimes it's racialized, where someone of color doesn't feel as empowered as someone with white privilege, and uh, that's the power differential. So it's like, it, it's the, it, you know, healthy relationships are based on the health of the people in the relationship. It's not necessarily based inherently, universally, on just the qualities of the people, right? We can't make decisions by looking at aesthetics or chronological age. We just can't. Um, and so someone 19 dating someone 31, it happens. Um, what are they finding in common? I don't know. But as long as the power, because what I want for everyone is to have what we call mutuality, which means everyone feels as though they have as much power as the other. Equality, not really ever gonna happen. If we look at the true definition of equality, there will always be someone who does more of something, you know, whatever it is. But, and this comes up even in couples that are within the same couple years of age. I can work with couples that are, one's 48, one's 49, and they have comp a complete power differential. Again, because one is white privilege, or one of them is male, the other's female. It happens all the time for different reasons. And so I always want to know, not their age. I don't even ask my clients their age. As long as they're of age, I don't care. I want to understand how they feel in the relationship, how they're showing up in the relationship, how their partner impacts them, how decisions are made, what communication looks like, are boundaries honored, how do they talk about each other. That's all I care about, the actual factors. Because the health of a relationship is determined by the health of the people. Age doesn't promise or, or really illuminate or communicate anything right? Because there's a lot of loving relationships that are decades in separation, right? Huge age gaps. So it's really about the people. So if this 19-year-old is in a loving relationship where they are feeling empowered and loved and cared for, have at it, truly, because it's about mental health. 
you know, and that isn't promised based on age. And that's why I get frustrated when people make decisions based on age and assume the older person's the person in position of power or somehow if they uh, have enough age difference that one of them's being manipulative. It doesn't work like that. I've been in many age gap relationships where I was the younger one and I was the older one. And I never, I don't think in terms of age. So I never thought in terms of that. I never lived from that. It was more just about how can I be a good person? How is this person impacting me? How am I impacting them? What do we have in common? Do we have compatibility? What's the chemistry like? And then off you go, right? Maturity is a real thing, but sometimes the younger people have more maturity than older people. I work with a lot of people in their fifties and sixties that have no emotional intelligence and no maturity, right? So as long as they're over 18 or whatever the legal age of consent is in your state or country, which again, it's state by state and country by country, um, it's about who the people are in the relationship and how they care for each other, truly. I don't throw numbers around. It's kind of how I am when someone says, you know, how much sex should a couple have every day or week or month or year? I don't know, whatever feels good for them. You know what I mean? You have to check in on the actual people in the relationship. So I hope that helps, but I like that question. Um, I'm always trying to normalize diverse creative ways of being because again, we live in a culture that's all about assimilation and conformity and uniformity and we're so obsessed with that and anything outside the lines of what we're used to where we see as traditional is inherently pathologized and made wrong and it's a mess. And don't get me started on gender. So many uh, gender roles and gender expectations, it's a mess. Um, All right, coming up next, we're gonna be talking about uh, male insecurities. Yep. What they are, looking at some stats and ways to kind of uh, step outside of all that. And then we'll be closing out with some DMs. So if you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page in the DMs and uh, we'll answer your question. Whatever you're wondering about, someone else might be. So helping you or helping others. Uh, but stick around. We'll be back. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right. We're back and we're talking about the most common insecurities for Men, um, yes, as always, I'm going to make this as inclusive as possible. So this is for people that are both penis owners and non-penis owners, essentially men and come in all different shapes, sizes, and forms. Uh, look, it's hard enough for us to get through the day. I don't know how we do sometimes because we're up against so much, right? We're up against what we feel is expected of us because of our race, because of our gender, because of our body shape and size, our class. It's, it's a mess. But when we talk about bodies, Oh my God, we're so insecure. It's very, 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 very hard, right? And if you're male or male defined or butch or whatever it is, masculine, there's a lot of things that show up and toxic masculinity doesn't allow us to be our authentic selves, right? And that's why I'm not trying to save masculinity or maleness. I'm trying to just save people's self-esteems and liberate people. And we got to get away from these ideas. Um, but it really traps us and it really creates a sense of shame if you don't live up to the norms and standards. And I see these really funny memes about what's expected. You know what I mean? Like big muscles, tiny waist, gigantic penis, deep voice, making tons of money, always assertive and aggressive, always interested in ready for sex. Like these, it's just these long script that, that very, very, very few people live up to. And, uh, it's not just women or non-binary individuals who struggle with body image. It's also men. And that's, some, that's surprising to some people, depending, I guess, on where they live. And yes, there's some subcultures that are a lot harder or harsher than others. You know, out here in places like LA or New York, it might be even more intensive, but it's not uncommon for people that are male identified to worry about height, weight, skin, body hair, penis size. All of these things create struggles, but there's also things like nipple shape, patchiness or like a lack of thickness around someone's beard, too much body hair, not enough body hair, all these different things. Because again, we keep normalizing and idealizing a certain kind of body. People say things like tall, dark, and handsome. And I'll work with 
people that will talk about their potential partner, someone they met or someone they want, and they'll talk about they're too short or I don't want to date a short guy. And it's like, that has nothing to do with anything. That's about the person who's speaking's ego because height literally impacts nothing. It makes the person who's mocking height feel too tall. Well, get over yourself. Get over your your struggle with being a woman who's taller than a man. Be better than that. And this is an example of where we not only shame others, where we not only perpetuate these toxic systems and ideals, but we also keep ourselves single because you should hear people's list of what are deal breakers or what they think they need. And it's amazing. And it's like, wow, you just ruled out basically everybody. Like you're not looking for love anymore. You're looking for something to make your ego feel at its best or most intact. Be better than that because these are ego lists. But again, we have to stop talking about people's bodies. But again, just normalizing that people that are male, right, also have body struggles and issues that shouldn't be shocking, but it's something that we're still talking about. And then comes the whole topic of penises. I'm always talking about this. And I have a couple advocate friends, allies and whatnot that are male, female. And they're talking about this as well, like these small penis jokes. I heard that a lot around the time of Trump. That's body negativity. That's body shaming. That's to imply that there's something wrong with that, right? And that's one of the biggest insecurities that penis owners have is that whole concept of size. And uh, it's not just size though, it's also shape and appearance. And again, some of that's because we normalize one monolithic idea of what a man should look like. Also because for some straight men, the only time they've seen another man naked is in porn because they don't have access to seeing a diverse set of male bodies to know what diversity looks like. And porn is the worst place to learn about body positivity or body diversity because it seeks a certain style. It's like looking through a a magazine at Models to see female bodies for the first time. Again, a lot of hetero men only see a certain kind of naked man. And that doesn't bring us into the diversity. And so we have to start talking about that. We have to shut down the jokes, right? We have to normalize. Um, That kind of ties into also sexual performance, which is another big male concern because it's assumed that it's the male's job. Um, If it's in a man-on-man relationship, the top has a lot of this pressure. And if it's in a more hetero relationship, the guy's always assumed to be the top and to be assertive. But whether gay or straight, some men are bottom. Some men are more passive. Some men are more receptive. That is just how that goes. Manliness is not always about interested in sex and wanting an ability to top in that performance way. There's a lot of anxiety that comes into my office with men about getting hard, staying hard, erect, right? Uh, being the assertive one. It, it's, it's, it's an exhaustion. <laughs> it's literally a clinical exhaustion. And you know what my biggest frustration with that is? Not just my empathy for the anxiety of the person in front of me talking, but because what are we talking about? Sex is supposed to be fun. I, I think I say that at least once a show. It's supposed to be fun. We have to let go of these ideas of what it needs to look like to be good, correct, complete, final, adult, whatever it is. It's just supposed to be fun. Find the fun. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to keep talking about male securities. Uh, also, just a little bit of a reminder, if you guys have not done any self-care today, self-care, a little bit of joy, a little bit of pleasure, some rest. And if you haven't checked out past episodes of Loveline, you can do so by going to wearechannelq.com. Look at my little face. Well, actually, got to scroll down, look for my face, click on it, and there it is. Took me a little bit myself to find it one day. Uh, All right, stick around. When we come back, we're going to keep talking about insecurities. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Odyssey.
All right, we're back and we're talking about common insecurities for men. Talking about bodies, talking about penises, talking about sexual performance. Now we also have to talk about sexual interests, all the things that arouse you. Listen, we do not choose what turns us on. It is a vast, complex process of all sorts of different factors. A lot of it is cultural norms and values, things that we are socialized into believing is attractive. Also, the taboo of things that we're socialized to avoid and not see as attractive. But again, remember, it doesn't care, our arousal system doesn't care about your gender, it doesn't care about your sexual orientation, and that's why we're all a little bit bigger than what we think we are, right? Sexual orientation is more than just the, the uh, gender choice. It's bigger than that. It's sight, sound, smells, situations, fabrics, outfits, scenarios, the environment, right? So many different pieces, power play, taboo. We don't choose those things, that's in there. And the worst thing we can do is deny it and try to reduce it, right? We don't, we don't have to act out every element, right? We have a vast constellation of things that we're aroused by, but we shouldn't feel shame about it. And a lot of people do. Oh, well, I'm straight. I shouldn't enjoy doing this to another person or having this part of my body touched. Or I'm a man, and so I shouldn't feel confident allowing or touching this part of someone's body or having my body touched. You're allowed to be a man or be hetero because, again, there's a lot of cis hetero anxiety in this. You're allowed to be submissive as a man. You're allowed to be a bottom. You're allowed to enjoy sexuality that involves the presence or engagement with another man and still be hetero, right? You're allowed as a man or as a hetero man to allow some form of anal play or anal penetration done on you. Yes, 100%. Anything that a straight person does is straight sex. Anything a male does is male sexuality. It's not a prepackaged thing that you have to squeeze yourself into. You're allowed to still have some homo tendencies, some bi tendencies, whatever it is that doesn't make you gay. And if it does, that's cool. Enjoy that beautiful ride. But again, it's about authenticity. And it's about only having sex with partners that value authenticity and truth and won't shame you based on your orientation or your gender. Don't have sex with people that shame your body. Don't have sex with people that want to know a thousand questions and need to see a thousand photos of your body. That's body negative. That's body shaming. Have sex with people that have a more mature sexuality that are like, hey, I'm interested in you and whatever that means. Let's do this. Let's be explorative. Let's be creative. I'm not going to mock you. I'm not going to shame you. I'm not, you know, we're no longer in relationships with people who make fun of the porn we like or the kinds of things we fantasize about. We're, we're dumping them. That's toxic. We're moving on. We're not letting our self-esteem, our sexual self-esteem carry that crap anymore. Get rid of those people, right? We're not doing that anymore. Moving forward, being better, 100%. And then finally, uh, status and class is another male anxiety that hits the top 10. Man, we are overly tied to our work to determine our worth and value and how much you earn and your profession or your professional title or your educational level is all tied in there. It's a vicious cycle. Everyone is worth and value, even if they're not working. In fact, I want us to work less. I'm proud of people that have found a way to work as little as possible and find happiness in other things. But we, you know, again, I hear people's wish list, and on it is often a lot of classism. They have to own a home, they have to make a certain amount. Why, what does that promise? That then you don't have to achieve that? You can put it on them? You're gonna live off of them? Your dreams are gonna be fulfilled through them and what they've worked hard for? Grow up, 
grow up, create the life you want so they can be themselves and they can just be a true partner. Partnership means they're living life next to you. You're experiencing things together. They're not responsible for you. They're not responsible for your underemployment or the fact that you didn't achieve what you wanted financially. And so you're going to achieve it through them. What a horrible level of pressure. Cause a lot of the men I'm working with, I'm telling them to happily tell their partner, I want to work less. So you need to work or you need to work a little bit more. I want some joy and pleasure in my life. I want to stay home and see the kids as well. Maybe I want to stay home altogether. You know what I mean? I want my weekends free. So a lot of the guys I'm working with, they're putting, they're setting boundaries at work. They're working less. They're leaving earlier. They're taking days off. They're, they're also focusing on self-care. We're doing mental health before everything else. And so that often means the partner has to be gainfully employed or maybe work more or take some of those financial stresses. A hundred percent. It's very cis hetero thinking that the man should burden, should carry the burden for all the financial responsibilities. We're not doing that anymore because they already carry that anxiety. That's toxic masculinity, that their worth as a man, as a father, as a husband, as a boyfriend is what they can financially provide. We're splitting the bill. We're shirking that off. My brothers are, are leaders in this. They're, they're no longer willing to take that kind of responsibility, and I love them for it, and they're modeling that for me, especially my older brother. I mean, I powerfully needed to see that. You know, It's a beautiful thing. But again, we want to break down these systems that we're all buckling under the weight of. Our children, our loved ones, our siblings, our friends. We're kind of flattening all that out. So really just start to identify what are the areas of body esteem, sexual low esteem, or you know, sexual esteem, I guess I should say, self-esteem, relational esteem. What are the elements that make you feel bad? And is that coming from the outside or is that coming from the inside? Is that work you have to do or is that work you have to do with setting boundaries in your life around how it enters. Do you have to tell people to please stop commenting on certain things, telling certain jokes? Do you have to unfollow certain things on social media? Do you have to find new outlets of a better form of representation for maleness, right? Or whatever it is. Do that work. That's the powerful work. That's a powerful work of mental health, right? All right. When we come back, take a little break, but we're going to talk about benefits from cutting out toxic family members. Yep. I know. That's part of boundaries, part of mental health, y'all. All right, stick around. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and Odyssey. All right, we're back doing a little bit of a check-in on the state of the world. Um, Bhutan. I don't know if many people are familiar with Bhutan. It's quite a fascinating place. I've been inspired by a lot of things that are happening over there. Now, of course, no place is perfect. Uh, stunning visually. I've never been, but I've done a lot of research. So again, not everything there politically is perfect. But the reason why I first brought them up was um, they have a gross national happiness index. So sit with that for a second. Imagine a place that assessed the happiness of those that lived there and tried to make changes based on supporting that and perpetuating that versus the gross national product, which is what most of us do, which is just about making our worth or success of, as a culture, a country rooted in how much we produce and, and finances, fiscally speaking, right? But Bhutan is one of those places where they're like, well, happiness is most important. I mean, talk about a place that really centers mental health. Now, again, not perfect, um, but I like the concept and I'm inspired by the concept because again, I think we, we see this in research on Olympiads and record holders of any kind that when a bar is set, we, uh, believe that that's all that's possible. The minute someone pushes it further, which is constantly happening, new records 
right? Uh, new world records, someone running faster, throwing something farther, jumping higher. It actually tells us we can do more and it pushes the bar for everyone, right? Once a new record is created, people advance closer to that, right? So somehow seeing someone else able to do something allows us to be able to go even further. That's why some people like things like group fitness classes. They see other people pushing themselves and it gives them that extra kick. And that's why when I see places like Bhutan focusing on mental health and wellness, social wellness and pleasure and happiness, it's like, wow, it is possible. Right? It's like where some people will challenge capitalism like I do here in America, and they'll bring up examples of socialism where it's failed or universal healthcare not being as great. And it's like, well, there's always going to be failures, but there's also successes and seeing other places pulling off another way of being reminds us of what's possible, even if we don't mimic it or mirror it perfectly. But the reason why Bhutan came up was because, check this out, ready for this stat, in under two weeks, and again, it's a smaller place, but also very isolated and, and not a place that's heavily funded. They vaccinated 93% of adults in under two weeks, 93%. We thought we were crushing it here in America and in California, but less than two weeks for the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan to vaccinate almost all of its eligible population. Really sit with that. Uh, the campaign kicked off on the 27th, 93%. That's 472,000 people between 18 and, and the age of, I love this as well. <laughs> The 93% included people between the ages of 18 and 104. Whew. What a blessing. Health minister said uh, a sense of purpose that each of us has. I'm sorry, a sense of purpose that each of us is embracing to protect our country and the people we loved. Uh, but again, that, that shows their collective mentality, their collective responsibility, where they're all about solidarity right? They're willing to make small, necessary changes. Um, and they see it as, and I love this word, someone used the word, uh, it's, it's a sign of our collective sacred duty. I love that. You know, we're so, I, I constantly critique and try to challenge how individualistic we are here in America, right? I give those examples of we worry about our country only, or our state only, or our sexual orientation only, or our neighborhood only. Don't worry about that. That's not my neighborhood. We draw these arbitrary lines. And I like that in Bhutan, they have such a sense of solidarity that they call it a collective sacred duty, which is what I was calling upon. I was saying to people, wear a mask. You might not feel like you are a high risk, but other people are. And people that other people love might be, you know? Um, but listen, to, look at here, going further. In the first, within the first week, 85% of them had been vaccinated. In the first week, it's inspiring to me. It will always be inspiring to me when I see people thinking beyond themselves, outside of themselves. Um, you know, I want I want more of that in America, and that's kind of what's happening. We talk about things like Black Lives Matters, right? Reminding everyone that just because you're not black, right, or you don't know someone black, that there are still other lives that matter. We talk about that. We talk about LGBTQIA rights. You might not be trans or gay or non-binary or bi, but human beings exist that are and they are still worthy of care and respect even if you don't directly relate to it because they're quote unquote no one you know or not in your family right we have to think of this whole concept of otherness which in mental health terms is is truly the definition of mental health and we look at what we define as having personality disorders narcissism uh sociopathy borderline um often that's the negation of the humanity of others right we even see that in capitalism which is why we constantly critique our capitalist culture, is we put profits before people, right? We put business before people. We want people to give their everything to helping produce 
goods and helping other people make money off their labor, but then they'll get fired on the fly and replaced within moments of them leaving or dying, right? It's such a backward system. Um, all right, coming up next, we're going to be sliding into those DMs. So if you got a DM for us, drop it in our Loveline IG page. Uh, yeah, and you can check out past episodes of Loveline by going over to wearechannelq.com. Scroll on down, look for my face, click on it. And uh, yeah, coming up next, though, we'll be sliding into those DMs. So stick around. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and on Odyssey. All right, we are back and uh, it is time to slide into those DMs. Sliding into the DMs. This one says, hey, Dr. Chris, do you think getting a sugar daddy under a false name is wrong? Yeah, interesting. If the talking and that part is all genuine, but you don't use your real name or maybe location for safety and future job reasons. Is that okay? Or is that too catfish? I actually love this question for some reason. Um, you're allowed to do whatever you need to do to protect yourself. I mean, you're for, you really kind of nailed it when you said, if you don't use your real name or location for safety or job reasons, well, I will always honor decisions made in service of safety. Catfishing is about manipulation and misleading. Catfishing is false representation of every element of self and really leading someone on. And, and it's pretty freaking violent and emotionally abusive. But if you're showing up genuinely um, and you're protecting yourself, well then I support that, you know? I, I even support maybe the recognition like, hey, just so you know, this isn't my real name. I'm using a false name until I get to know you or until I get more comfortable with you or because this is my preferred name, you know? You have a right to do that. Um, remember, let's not get hung up on labels. You know, someone's name, knowing someone's name, their real name, their birth name, their government name, that's not about whether or not you really know someone. Really knowing someone is if you really know them. You know what I mean? Do you know who they are as a human being? Have you really connected and built intimacy? And these more superficial things like, do you know their favorite color? Uh, let go of stuff like that. That's not really knowing someone, these superficial topical things. So, you know, as long as you're presenting a real self, but I think that there's also a step further if you wanted to let them know, like, hey, this isn't my real name and I prefer to use this name. But people do that all the time. People often move forward with nicknames, you know, or a shortened form of their name or using their middle name instead of their first name. And that goes on for years. And then at some point they're like, oh, just so you know, that's my middle name or that's my nickname or that's the name I always wanted. Like, it's just a superficial label. So I don't think looking out for safety in the beginning is catfishing someone. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not so hung up on the name. I want everyone to be safe and taken care of, and it's really hard in our culture. You know, There's a lot of slut-shaming. Um, that's why I appreciate the job reasons part is, uh, unfortunately, we hear news stories all the time about people getting fired or their kids taken away for being, or kicked out of school, we heard, right, for a mom having an OnlyFans. You know, and again, um, the system's failed a lot of people during corona and before corona, and so there's a lot of people that are having to rely upon sex work, of whatever kind to get their needs met. Some people happily do that. Some people it's due to duress. Either way, it, it, it doesn't speak to your character, right? You're a good person regardless of what profession you have. And in our world, in fact, to be a sex worker often shows even more mental health because you're living in authenticity and truth and you're sex positive and you're not getting hung up on all these other you know, pathologizing notions. Um, but I do appreciate that again. Weekly, I'm hearing about someone getting fired or something going viral where someone found their OnlyFans or their you know historical porn career. And we just love shaming people and weaponizing things like that. So yeah, I think it's a healthy response <laughs> in the sex phobic world we live in that you maybe don't want your real name out there so that you can't be held accountable to what you're doing right now. You know what I mean? We have to have a right 
Um, so yeah, take care of yourselves. But that's also like a more globalizing message. Let's do better culturally so that people don't have to feel as though they can't live in the world in the way they want without somehow being penalized it or having it misunderstood. Because again, the work isn't about us getting more sex phobic and not doing those things. It's about us learning how to get familiar. And that's what's coming out of the OnlyFans boom is the whole world better get familiar with finding out that people they love, care about, work with, work for, that they're doing sex work on the side. There's gonna be more of that coming, more nudes being released, more, more OnlyFans getting divulged. So like, get comfortable and familiar with that. Let's, let's not shame it, but we're all going to have experiences of having that getting disclosed about someone we know or work with or care about 100%. So we have to be better at encountering it, you know, but yet legislation's trying to push back, you know, platforms getting taken down, um, credit card services not willing to process adult content. It's all just sex phobia and shaming. So let's do a little bit better than that. All right, y'all, that is our show. If you got a DM for us, drop it in the DMs on our Loveline IG page and give us a follow. We're always there for you, always confidential, always anonymous. Whatever you're wondering about, we're here to answer it. Also, if you want to check out past episodes of Loveline, you can do so by going over to wearechannelq.com, scrolling down, looking for my face, clicking on it, post, share, binge, everything's there. And uh, weekend's coming, so uh, make sure you focus this weekend on tons of self-care, Lots of rest and then some more rest, a little bit more rest and carving out some time for some joy and pleasure. And uh, we'll be back on Monday. So we'll see you then. As always, thanks for hanging out and y'all enjoy the rest of your night.